Welcome to Everyday Law, the show where we talk about things that are vitally important to know about the law for everyone. I'm your host, Bob Clark, and I'd like to say at the outset that the opinions that are expressed on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College or its employees. Also, the legal discussions we have here are not intended to provide legal advice. Rather, we would suggest, if you're interested in is peaked in a topic or if it's germane to you personally, that you contact a lawyer and get personalized legal advice with regard to that topic. We have a rare privilege today. One of the legendary figures on the Howard County legal community, Cecilia B. Pays, is with us today. Welcome, Cece. Thank you very much, and I feel very welcomed already by you, Bob. Oh, that's great. Uh, just a little background on CC. She attended Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania and graduated in 1977 with a degree in government. She then attended Suffolk University Law School, where she graduated with her Juris Doctor in 1980. She has been in the practice of law for 36 years in various different states and, in fact, at least one foreign country. And she has gained renown in the modern age. And when I say the modern age, commencing in 1999 with her mediation center located in Ellicott City, Maryland. She's presently also affiliated as of counsel with Harry B. Siegel in Ellicott City, and they represent the interests of minor children and other individuals in domestic relations cases. First question, Cece, how did you end up becoming a lawyer? Well, to be quite honest with you, uh, Bob, the decision to become a lawyer started when I realized I didn't have a lot of skill sets to do anything other than research as a government major. I had a lot of information, but no way to apply it. And so I found that law school was very attractive. I had a desire to go to Boston, so I applied to numerous law schools in Boston and ended up with Suffolk University, which turned out to be a fabulous education for me. Excellent. And you ultimately ended up down in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. How did that take place? Uh, Essentially, my husband being retired Army, we traveled quite a bit, and I had taken my first bar exam in Maryland. Um, And over the course of our lives, for various family reasons, we decided to move from Florida back to Maryland, which we did in 96. I did work for a firm, a family law firm, up in Baltimore County, Towson area for a couple years, and then I decided to open my own practice in 99. But the the decision to be in Maryland was really a joint decision between my husband and I to be closer to our families, but not too close. I understand completely. What is your favorite thing that you do in your work on a day-to-day basis? Whether it's talking to clients about potential litigation or negotiations or doing mediation. It really is about the people and the sense that I'm learning a great deal about their character, their lives, and and looking for ways to be able to assist them in resolving the conflicts that they have in their particular settings. So that probably is the favorite thing I do. So you're a people person. I'm a, a very big people person. Could you explain generally how people come into play in domestic relations work? Well, they generally, with my experience, come into play in two different ways. One is that um, they feel a need to change whatever's going on in their life at the time. So they come in and seek legal counsel about what are their options, what could be the issues, what are the pros, what are the cons of different actions that they might take before anything is initiated. 
often those are the people that I either uh, recommend marriage counseling or I recommend mediation to if they come in to see me in a litigation setting. Let me stop you for one second. Sure. And let's make a distinction. You talk about marriage counseling and mediation. Are they different things? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Could you generally define what you consider to be marriage counseling and its goal? Marriage counseling, and I'm not a therapist, but over the years I've, be, I've known many therapists, is basically the opportunity to improve your communication, determine where things are triggering each other, and improve your marital relationship. I find often in my experience that unstated expectations that people have of each other over the years can impact how they communicate and how they feel the other person is fulfilling their needs in a marriage. And so marriage counseling would try to resolve those and give them a better communication package going forward or ability going forward to be able to deal with those in a marriage setting, staying in the same relationship. Medi Let me stop you ahead. there for one second and just ask, is that something in your experience that requires the participation of both parties to a marriage? I mean, does if one person wants to improve communication and the other person, for whatever reason, won't acknowledge there's a communication issue, how do, how do you get around that? I think that um, most therapists would say that it reaches a point where they can't get around it. Okay. It has to be a commitment from both people. It's the same for mediation. Okay. Both people have to be committed to wanting to resolve the conflict that they have in the room and then they need to decide what format they want to use for the mediation to resolve it. So I presume that counseling is, the goal is to stay together and to have the relationship work better. And then mediation, where, what, what is that exactly? Well, I, I agree with you that that's the, the goal of, um, of marriage counseling in most cases. The mediation, the difference between that mediation is that mediation is a, a process by which two or more people meet with a neutral third party who is impartial and, and doesn't have a stake in the game, but that is going to facilitate their conversation. And how they facilitate it depends on the process that the me particular mediator uses, whether it's a more therapeutic model or a more bargaining model. Let's talk about that for a minute. What's the difference between a therapeutic and a bargaining model? Therapeutic models tend to be more focused on the participants and their communication skills and styles and whether or not they have relatively equal balance of power in the relationship and whether or not there's going to be an ongoing underlying relationship going forward. Husband and wife, if they have children, oftentimes family members in estate settings, those types of settings. But it could also be small businesses or partnerships where there's going to be a continued relationship that needs to continue in order for the, the benefits to inure to each of the parties. So this isn't purely about family law. Family law is an important component of it. But as you say, there are times that there are businesses where the partners or the business owners don't operate or communicate so well. So a therapeutic mediation there can also be useful. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it is really where more is put into the hands of the people in the room using the mediation process and their attorneys to try and resolve it in a fashion that works for them and their underlying relationship. Often in non-family settings, a more bargaining process is used because the underlying relationship isn't as important. There's a particular dispute that needs to be resolved and they, they work to resolve it. And the goal is to resolve that dispute and I move see. forward. I see. Now, I believe from 
knowing you these many years, that you have worked with the therapeutic model actually in conjunction with a family therapist. Isn't that right? That is correct. My The first seven years after I took the uh, 40-hour training and then the uh, family-based okay, mediation training. Okay, let me stop training. you for a second. So there's training involved in this? Yes. Okay. Th- yes. If you want to be on any court rosters in the state of Maryland, meaning that you would get referrals from the court directly, you are required to take a 40-hour basic civil mediation training and then either mediate or co-mediate two cases to be able to be on the civil mediation roster. If you want to be on a family uh, roster where you would you would mediate child access issues, there's an additional 20-hour mediation training, and you then would have to co-mediate or mediate eight hours of child access-related um, sessions. Okay. And I know from experience that you have done a great deal more training than that. Isn't that correct? Yes, yes. And in fact, you are the trainer presently. Yes, I do. Through the Mediation Center, I do the 40-hour basic training. I do the two different... You train thing. other people for the 40 hours. Exactly. Okay. I, do the, I do train other uh, people of all walks of life. You don't have to be a lawyer or a therapist to be a mediator. Often I have employment experts that come in, people who've worked in HR who come in, and they are looking to be able to mediate in the employment setting. So they take the 40-hour basic training from me. And then there's a 20-hour child access training that I present and a 20-hour property and financial training, which relates to division of personal property and, and other assets, retirement assets, homes, things like that, as well as financial issues, child support, alimony, and other issues in a divorce setting. I would presume those later 20-hour trainings, several of them, are predominantly attended by lawyers? No, actually, um, frequently, especially the child access, it is therapists or non-lawyers that attend. In the property and financial training, I frequently have non-attorneys who come because it's not intended, as you said at the beginning of this broadcast, that it's not intended to teach them how to be lawyers or to make those kinds of decisions, but to red flag those issues that they know to tell the participants, I think you need to talk to an expert, you know, and refer them, if their attorneys aren't present, back to their attorneys. Okay. I led you on a lengthy divergence there from when we were talking about essentially the two models for mediation, the therapeutic and then the bargaining. If you could just briefly describe the bargaining. The bargaining model is a more facilitative or direct model, meaning that the mediator takes more control over the process itself and tries to keep the parties in the room and focused. It's a lot easier to do when when there are lawyers present because the lawyers know kind of the types of things that need to be resolved in any particular case. But the goal is more to get the issues out, talk about goals that the parties have, do enough information gathering and brainstorming for them to see what options there are that might not be based in the law, but that would help resolve the issues between the parties and allow them to move forward. So you have occasion then to meet with people who are represented by lawyers, and presumably the lawyers have not been able to work out any sort of resolution of their differences, and then you come in and kind of give a fresh and neutral perspective. Is that fair? That is correct. That is correct. It is not evaluative, This and this is my opinion. In my opinion, evaluative mediation is really not mediation. That's more neutral case evaluation, because that's where someone, where the mediator is actually giving an opinion 
of the pros and cons of a party's case. Uh, in mediation, the, the goal is to ask enough questions for the parties themselves to develop um, options or their lawyers to develop options um, for settling all the matters, which some of which options are not available through the legal system. So do you have any sense anecdotally what percentage of mediations work out with someone who's a well-trained professional such as yourself? I would say that in a family law case, because they are very different than non-family civil matters, I would say there's anywhere from 80 to 85 percent that settle within the mediation setting itself. And if they don't settle there, they often are then let, you know, when they leave, they have enough focus that they can, they can resolve it at the settlement conference or before the trial itself. So you're able to help them resolve some of their issues and then maybe focus on possible resolutions for others that when it goes to the court for a pretrial conference or something, the judge can say, hey, what do you think about you know, division of this asset or something mm -hmm. like that. Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I've had many attorneys report back to me that the outline that I drafted that I sent to them may not have been agreed to in the mediation session, but ultimately led to a, an outcome that was mostly based on that outline. That, that's wonderful to get that many resolved. Is mm -hmm. So uh, let, let's try a hypothetical here. Let's suppose that a young couple comes to you and they have children and, and maybe they own a home but doesn't have a lot of equity in it and they have student loans and these sorts of things and they're having conflict. How do you approach something like that from the start? Well, from the start, um, the, the initial dis introductory remarks that I give are designed to kind of let the parties in the room know who I am and how I do things and also what the mediation process can do for them. It can help resolve things. And that sets the tone. You know, I often say I have what I call a positive personality disorder, and those who know me can, can relate to that. And that is what I put out to them, is that we can get this done. If they have children, I emphasize that the benefit to the kids is great if parents will resolve things in a mediated or negotiated setting rather than through litigation. And then I find out from them what they feel their priority issues are, and they often are different and how they would like to proceed forward. And then it's just a matter of really gathering information that helps me and also helps them look at potential outcomes that are tailored particularly to that couple and okay. their families. So do they need to have lawyers to participate in this? Or is it better if they do or they don't? Or where do you come down on that? Well, as a lawyer, um, I... I, and as, as a lawyer who knows as a mediator, I cannot give legal advice. That okay. is the one, one thing. It's Just like the show can't give legal advice. Exactly. Self-determination is a key process element that is part of mediation. And so if you're giving opinions or advice, you're moving out of your neutral or impartial role and siding a little bit with one side or the other. Because generally speaking, the answer isn't equally down the middle when it comes to kids especially. So you find when you go into these mediations and you dig into the meat of the issues that sometimes one spouse is maybe righter on one topic and the other is on another? Well, the answer to that is if I'm doing my job right, then I may have that opinion, but I'm not going to express it in any way because really reasonableness, truth, beauty are all in the eyes of the beholder. I understand. And so I can't, if I'm starting to do that, then I'm judging in my head, which will impact my ability to help the people in the room. So how, without disclosing 
how you really feel underneath it all. Do you coax people into more reasonable positions on issues where underneath it all you go, wow, he should contribute more, mm-hmm. you know, in the kitchen or with mm-hmm. the kids or something like that? Um, I use a, a what would that look like kind of approach. Okay, so what does that mean? That means, for example, if we're talking about financial issues between the parties, I might not necessarily go directly to child support or alimony, but look at if they're living separately, how much money does it cost to be in the original home, whether it's it's owned by the parties or rented, and how much does it cost for the party who is out of the home. And then I try and get them to look at the realities of the situation, often, especially with younger couples and or even those who are uh, married longer but have minor children, they are already living to the limits of both their incomes if they're both working before they separate. So there's a lot of difficulty around the issues of, you know, you can either make more money or reduce your expenses. And that's the approach I take. And that is what works for the two of you. And then how do we define it? So do you get all legally on them sometimes and tell them about things like the child support guidelines that exist? Well, the answer is yes. I can give legal facts as a mediator. I can say there are child support guidelines. You know, you can look them up. Here's what your income is. Right. And I have that program on my, my laptop so I can run them for them if they're what we call within guidelines. So you can actually do the numbers and help people understand the economics of splitting up or staying together. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes the saddest cases are the ones where the parties know that they shouldn't be living together for the benefit of their kids or themselves and they realize they can't afford to separate. I see. see. And that, that does come up periodically it's unfortunate as another divergence do the kids ever weigh in on these things like you do a mediation with the parents about stuff do the kids ever get involved no no that's my policy some mediators may if the child's older like 16 or 17 you know speak to them but um as as a as a policy i do not speak to the children because my sense is the kids want the parents to make the decision and stop putting them in the middle that makes sense so just in the context i know you've done lots of domestic litigation in the court system, does the court ever have occasion to speak to people's kids and say, who do you want to live with or what arrangements do you want? That kind of thing. The answer is yes. The judges um, and sometimes the magistrates will speak to the children under certain circumstances, but they, as a rule, do not ask, who would you like to live with? Okay. There's a whole program that is often presented to the judges to kind of show alternate questions that can be asked, such as tell me about your day that you have with your dad, tell me about the day that you have with your mom, and allow that kind of information to come out by watching the child's responses and the body language. So do they ever do that to take the pressure off the kid outside the presence of the parents or the the parents' lawyers? Yes, especially if they're under a certain age. Um, They're under a certain age, and again, this is judge to judge, magistrate to magistrate, they might never talk to the children under a certain age, but whatever that age is, is, you know, their choice. But they will often take kids into their chambers and ask the questions versus, you know, having them do it in front of the the parents. I see. Because they don't want to put pressure on the kids in an already fraught relationship. Exactly. Absolutely. So you do this mediation work and presumably you are paid to do this on an hourly basis? Yes, I am. Okay. 
Okay. Is this something that they pay a retainer so many hours or does one side pay and the other not? How, how does all the economics of it work? Well, the answer to that is it depends on the, on the mediator. What I do is I have a set hourly rate. They pay me for a two-hour session if it's family. They pay me for three to four if it's a non-family civil matter. And then if we go over that, then we deal with that at the end. Uh, usually both parties equally divide it, but that can be negotiated or discussed at the beginning of a mediation session. And I just, from my own experience being a lawyer in the area for the last 36 years, you hear about these astronomical bills that people sometimes get from their, their, their divorce lawyers, as they call them. And I would think that doing the mediation process could result in one spending vastly less money than hiring lawyers and fighting like cats and dogs for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. The National Family Resiliency Center, who started in the Howard County area, they did a study a few years back that said that if a couple is litigating all of the issues from soup to nuts with minor children, they'll spend a minimum of $50,000 each. Wow. Uh, and I don't know how many uh, families out there have put aside a litigation fund for those types of expenses. So when you get married, you need to put aside $100,000 in case you decide to get divorced? No, I think when you get married, you should ask significant questions of your future spouse about their their sense and their feelings about certain aspects of life, like children and division of labor and spending, and then check in periodically as you go through life. Don't assume that the other side can read your mind. Speak up. If there's, a, if there's something, pick a good time, sit down and say, look, this is starting to bother me. So I almost wonder if you need a checklist at the outset of a marriage of things that you might hypothetically confront that you need to talk about. You know, do you want to have children? Do you not? Are mm -hmm. you going to work? Are you going to work? That sort of thing. Exactly. Yes. And the answer, it's, it's, I joke about, I, I really think at this point, what I should do is do a premarital program for people so they can come in and I can say, well, as a, as a domestic lawyer, I can tell you these are the things that come up quite a bit. So are there a group of usual things that come up in every marriage or I mean mm -hmm. when we talk about marriage people living together having children having homes having careers together are there are the usual suspects out there from my experience and looking at it from my perspective I say yes oftentimes I think it is that what's the number one issue I think uh, finances okay. are almost always and um, the finances are that you know one person is going to go out and work. The other one may or may not work. But are they going to go back into the workforce? And what are your goals for the money? Where do you want to be in three years, five years, seven years, ten years? And how are you going to ensure that that happens? By not spending as much, by putting money away. Um, often you find spenders that marry savers. And that is, can cause a, a, a problem later on. But when you're in the throes of love and the chemistry and the romance is magical in the air, mm -hmm. those are kind of hard things to identify, aren't they? Yes, yes. But then you, you also are talking to an attorney who does prenuptial agreements as well. Uh, well just quickly, <laughs> what is a prenuptial agreement? A prenuptial agreement is an agreement where the parties prior to the marriage with plenty of time before the wedding ceremony sit down and talk about what they would like to have as a determination of what are their premarital assets, how are they going to treat assets acquired during the marriage, and how if, if divorce occurs, what might happen, and if a death occurs, what might happen? I of, see. Often much more um, recommended with second marriages when you have children from a first marriage. Okay. So what is the thing you least like doing in your work? 
I least like sitting in the room with two people who are so determined to hurt each other that they forget that they're hurting their children. So how prevalent is that? Not that often. It really isn't. You have conflict in all marital situations, but the really high conflict cases, sometimes which involve mental health issues, but oftentimes it's just people are so caught up in the emotions and the anger and the fear of how is this going to all come out in the end that they, they, they really can create a, a problem. And often, you know, it's very difficult to work with them. I can tell you, however, that I don't, I don't, give, up the sh- I don't give up and bail. I, I sit in there and I ask questions and, and I deal, pull all the tools out of my So toolkit. there's techniques to alleviate the anger or the distrust or the problems between the couple. Yes, there absolutely are. And I think that's why mediation is a wonderful process. And I presume all of these things apply to people who are living together and are not married as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So So I would be remiss uh, before we conclude our interview if I didn't note a couple of things that you've had some recent recognition. Uh, the legal preeminent legal newspaper in the state of Maryland, the Daily Record, has, repre- or has just recognized you as one of the 100, I, to me, either way I read it, most important women in Maryland. And I've just proud to have you as a friend and to have that attainment. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It was it's a it's a great honor and I really appreciated the the affirmation of what I tend to do as a mentor, as a mediator, as a lawyer. And so my understanding, because I, I wanted to have you in last week, and my recollection is you were up in Harford County or something doing this training that you've described. Is that right? Well, that was on Tuesday, yes. Yeah. And that's and that's something that I do. I try to get out um, and, and get to as many different types of training on family-related issues as I can, especially when they bring in a national speaker. Um, and that was Philip Stahl on Tuesday where I went up to Hartford County. Okay. And I presume that you do get around the state training others. Now, this is training lawyers and judges and lay people, correct? Yes. I um, actually was uh, asked one time to go down to the Judicial Education Center and work with some of the, the j- retired judges that do the co-mediation model at the Court of Special Appeals, okay. which is a program that takes cases on appeal and, um, if they're appropriate, try and resolve it before the the um, matter goes to complete appeal. I've been through that process several times unsuccessfully, unfortunately, but fortunately the appellate courts have vindicated my clients, so that's helpful. Well, that is always a good thing. (laughs) I'd also note that you were just named a super lawyer and one, I believe, of just three mediators, super lawyers in the state of Maryland. Is that right? That is correct. Thank you. And again, that's remarkable recognition and I think speaks to your success with people. So in addition to this mediation business, I presume there are other areas of your practice that you engage in as well. Yes. In my um, out-of-counsel position at um, Harry Siegel's office, that has given me an opportunity to have a support staff. So now I can do more best interest attorney work, which is basically where I represent the children when there's a high conflict case. And I do uh, an investigation and, and try to determine and help the courts determine what might be best. Let me focus when we only have a little bit of time, but when you talk about best interests in any kind of domestic litigation that involves children, the best interests of the child is the definitional goal of everything. And so what you're saying is, you know, husband and wife are fighting over the kids. You get brought in to give the court an opinion about what would be in the best interest of the children. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. And and oftentimes I'm asked to give my opinion 
sometimes I'm asked to give my recommendations, which is a little different than, than just the opinion. But I think it's, it's a, an important role because it allows the children in the middle to have someone who is listening to them without having a preference to mom or dad. Final thing, I'd like to ask you, what's your favorite thing about the law? Not about what you do, but about the law, whether it's the Constitution or whatever it is. I, I, I enjoy the appellate work because I, I enjoy the— And the, appellate work means it's gone to trial and it's up in one of the appeals courts in Maryland, right? Yes, and now you're looking at different cases that were decided by the Maryland Court of Special Appeals or the Court of Appeals, and you're trying to piece it together and come up with a rationale for why your clients— position should be honored and that they should decide in favor of your client. Sounds like more intellectual work to me. It is, yes. The reading and writing that some lawyers really hate to do, I tend to love to do. Well, that's a wonderful trait. Well, I really wanted to thank you for your appearance today on the show, and I'm hopeful we will cross paths in the future. And as questions come in from our listeners, I will bring them to your attention and perhaps we can respond to them next time. That would be fabulous. This is Everyday Law. Thank you, Cece Pays. Thank you very much. Thank you.